0: So, I'd ask you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and this evening I want to examine together with you uh, verses 9 through 12. For the sake of context, I'm going to read all the verses beginning in verse 1 and then go down through verse 12. So, hear now the word of the living God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, in this epistle, James uh, was writing to Jewish believers who were scattered uh, throughout the Roman Empire at this time, and really scattered by persecution. We see this persecution arise in the book of Acts, particularly uh, in chapter 8, following the stoning of Stephen. Stephen. Uh, this persecution settles in in Jerusalem, and many of the believers are scattered throughout the surrounding area uh, and the rest of the empire. And James, in particular, in writing to this, uh, these people who were s- scattered abroad, is writing to them in these opening verses, as we just heard, about the trials that they are encountering. Uh, if you get scattered from your home and you're under persecution, you're going to experience a great amount of trials. So this was first and foremost in the minds of the people to whom he was writing. And so he's counseling them. He's instructing them. How is it that they are to respond to these trials that the Lord has brought into their lives? And here in these verses, verse 9 through 12, he is summing up this discussion of uh, the trials And the people's response to them uh, by bringing up the ideas of poverty and wealth. And this is instructive for us as well, though we are not those who are scattered abroad throughout uh, our nation far away from our home, nor are we those who are enduring the kind of persecution that they were enduring in that day. Nonetheless, what James has to say here concerning trials and the way that God brings them into our lives and the way that we are to respond to them is evergreen for the Christian. So what can we learn? What can we take from what James has to say here, particularly as we consider the topics of poverty and wealth? Well, I have a theme for this sermon this evening, and that theme is to glory in Christ— is to be always rich. To glory in Christ is to be always rich. And as my particular uh, practice is, I have a theme for the sermon and then a question for the children to consider throughout the sermon that I want them to be thinking about. And that question is, is it better to be poor or rich? Is one of them better than the other? Uh, We're going to discuss this in our passage this evening, because there are a lot of thoughts that go around about that, and it's helpful for us uh, to think about what God's Word has to say on this. But let's consider the passage here again, particularly looking back at verse 9 together, where there James says to these Jews who are scattered abroad, these Jewish believers scattered abroad, "Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation very simple phrase there. The idea of the lowly one is the one who is poor. We see this particularly in contrast to the rich in the next verse. So we get the sense of the poverty of of this brother who is being spoken of here. And this is relevant instruction for the people to whom James is writing because, again, they've been dispersed from their homeland and they're undergoing persecution. This is not a state of affairs that tends to help you be rich. Um, By and large, you're going to be in poverty, you're going to be in great need in these circumstances, and yet his instruction to them is for them to boast in their exaltation, which is rather counterintuitive. How is it that they can be lowly and yet exalted in uh, this circumstance? Well, let's, let's consider why this is such a contradiction in our minds when we think about the think about poverty and the particular trials that it brings upon us and even particularly our faith poverty tries our faith and it makes it difficult for us to boast in numerous ways but particular unique difficulties that belong to poverty uh, if we don't have much in the way of wealth then we struggle for just getting the basics of life starvation homelessness slavery can be the kinds of things that result from a lack of having what you need in order to support yourself and these are all less than desirable circumstances to be in certainly I mean, these are curses oftentimes the way we would think we would think of them And it also creates a great amount of anxiety in our lives. It's trying. It's not the kind of thing you're going to sit up and say, thank you, God, that you made me homeless today. Thank you for the starvation that I am experiencing. That's not what immediately comes to mind. It's not just this lack of the things that you can have, the lack of what you need for the body that comes along with being poor, but also there's often a loss of dignity that comes along with uh, being in a state of poverty and a certain isolation that comes. You can lack access to the community that perhaps you once had access to or to the areas in which normal people get to experience and participate in. You're more likely to be mistreated because you have no avenue of recourse. You have no power uh, no sway in order to be able to do anything in response. Uh, and you can very easily develop a negative self-image in the sense of not only are you just in a state of being poor, but you're there because there's something inherently inferior about you, and therefore you deserve to be poor. you'll never be anything else other than poor. And this can lead to a whole bunch of mistaken beliefs about what it means. To be in this estate Things like, well, the only reason This could possibly be happening Is that I've committed some great sin Against God that I don't know about And so he's punishing me And has made me poor Or I just lack the faith that I need To have all the riches that I'm supposed to have As health and wealth preachers love To tell people that they would just get rich If they only had the right amount of faith This is not so In addition The idea that God just doesn't care God seems to care about others, he gives good things to others, but not to me, he just clearly doesn't seem to care about me. These are the kinds of things we can begin to tell ourselves, but all of these things are false. If we consider the testimony of Scripture, we see that it is quite the contrary. Many Christians were poor. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his ministry, lived a life not of affluence, but of great poverty and Christians, not just in the Scriptures, but throughout all of history, have dealt with this kind of poverty. It was not an example of God's judgment or his displeasure or lack of care for them. And indeed, the Scripture testifies very clearly, God does care for the poor. If we look just to the next chapter in James chapter 2, verse 5, we see James say, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Or similarly, if we look to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 17, the prophet says, When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Even if we think of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was in the synagogue and he took up the scroll of Isaiah and turned to Isaiah 61 and quoted those words about the one who has come in order to release the captives, in order to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, in order to preach good news to the poor. God cares about the poor, he seeks their good, and he saves them. And this, then, is what can become the boast of those who are poor, but yet have Christ. For there are riches that are given in Christ that are far greater than the riches of this world, something that's certainly not a new message for anyone who's been in the church for very long, but an essential one for us to consider. For what is received in Christ is worth more than all of the world's riches, indeed far exceedingly more This is something that our Savior brings out in a parable in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, a very short parable, but an essential one for us to remember, the parable of the hidden treasure, where there our Savior says, "The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field." picture there, being, being willing to give of everything in order to gain the precious treasure that is the kingdom of heaven and the king of that kingdom, Jesus, Jesus Christ himself, and the benefits that we have in him. Indeed, Christ also speaks to us of not laying up treasures for ourselves in this life, but laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven, that we may be rich there regardless of our estate here in this world. So the riches given in Christ far exceed that of the world. But also, the boast of the one who is poor in Christ is that whatever isolation the poor might often experience, one who is poor in Christ, ideally, there are some exceptions to this, but ideally is a member of the church. And the church is called to care for the needy among them. As one of the main ministries of the diaconate, the deacons are called to come and help those who are in need and uh, bring the resources of the church to bear to answer that need And so they have available to them resources that they otherwise would not have. But another part of their boast is that those who are poor, who, for whatever reason, do not have the riches of this life at this time, nonetheless, if they are walking by faith, if they are walking in the ways of the Lord, the ways of the Lord are those which are fruitful, are those which are, by and large, meant to lead to gaining in the things of this world because... Our God is a God who gives good gifts. And therefore, if they continue to walk in faithfulness, it's not a sure thing, but very often that does lead to their estate being bettered because that is the way that God has made his world to work and he loves to bless his children. And so even though they are rich outwardly, Christians are poor outwardly, poor Christians have great riches in Christ But there's also a dignity that they are afforded that those who are outside of Christ do not have, for they, whatever their bank account might say, have an equal standing in the church. There is no dollar amount that is necessary in order for one to be an elder, even a member in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, they are equal members of the church. They are equal inheritors of salvation together with all others, whether rich Or anything in between. And they are no less worthy before Christ of his grace. For to glory in Christ is to be always rich. And God gives these good gifts even to those who are poor. Well, Let us examine then as he gives counsel not only to the lowly brother, who was to boast in his exaltation and being exalted in Christ, but also then what he says to the rich in verses 10 and 11. And the rich in his humiliation, so he calls so the lowly, lowly brother to boast in his exaltation, now the rich to boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So poverty is a trial, but as we find Here And if we really think about it, we understand riches are also their own trial that we have to undergo and deal with before the Lord. What are the unique difficulties of riches in this life? Well, for one, we can allow riches to become a master over us. Rather than using them for the Lord, they become that which controls us. This is something to which our Savior speaks in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where he warns, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Wealth allows us to get a great deal many of things, things that are good, things that are desirable, but our desire for these things can crowd out our love for God if we are not careful and it can become a master over us. And this then leads to, if we go down this road, valuing things apart from their relationship to the Lord. We don't then look at, well, is this something that God has made for good? What's the purpose that God has made for this to be used in? But we really just look at it for, well, what do I desire to do with this? Do I like it? Do I like using it in this way? And then pursuing it because we have the ability. It's at our fingertips. It's something that we want. And so we allow our desire to master us, and wealth being the means for our lust to reign over us. And ultimately, this is then a valuing of things that help us to glorify ourselves, our our thought process, our way of life is no longer about how is it that I'm able to serve the Lord? How is it that I'm able to take the good things that He has given to me and use them in service to Him, bringing glory to Him and good to those who are around me? But rather, how is it that I satisfy my every desire and bring glory to myself and comfort to myself? This is an idolatrous attachment to possessions, to status, All of these kinds of things can come with wealth. And it's a unique difficulty that comes with wealth in this way. But also, there's a challenge and a temptation to haughtiness for those who are rich. Those who have a great deal can often think that they are above others. That just as the poor can tend to think, well, they're poor just because they are lesser than others and it's just inherent in them, the rich can tend to think, That they're rich simply because they are better than others. That they're not like the others who are lower, not only in status or class or wealth, but they are of just a different kind of humanity, perhaps, in their mind. They might also think that they have license to do certain things because they have such wealth, that therefore they should be allowed to get away with things that otherwise society wouldn't Endure, but they had the means in order to pay for it, so it should be okay for them. And so they can have an inflated view of themselves because they do think oftentimes their wealth is solely attributable to their own skill, their own work. And this isn't to take away from the fact that wealth does often follow hard work. Wealth does often follow those who are industrious, who give themselves to things, but not exclusively because of that. No one is wealthy simply because they gained it all by themselves. If you work to your hardest, if you have all of the talent in the world, and yet the Lord doesn't bless, the Lord doesn't give the opportunity, the Lord doesn't give the increase, you will not have great riches. Riches are a gift from the Lord. And so the warning to the rich is that their wealth, their power, Their status, and even they themselves will come to an end with this picture of being like the flower of the field, the flower of the grass, as this passage says, which is going back and hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 40, where the warning is all flesh is like grass, like the flower of the field that withers before the breath of God. And here the picture is the sun rises, the heat scorches the flower, and it fades, it withers and dies. And so it is for those who are rich. We may be rich for a time, but that is coming to an end. The riches of this life will cease to be, or those who are rich will cease to live in this life. And if riches, therefore, are their boast, then they will indeed be very poor in the things that matter, however rich they may be in wealth. this is the lesson that Christ seeks to drive home in Luke chapter 12, where he gives the parable of the rich fool. And at the end of that parable, he says in verses 20 through 21, but God said to this man who esteemed himself rich and sought to live for his riches, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so these are the unique difficulties and trials for those who are rich, but what is their boast? For they are also called to boast in this circumstance. Well, the boast, again, of the rich person who is in Christ is in his humiliation. The godly rich man is free. Free from living for his own riches. This is exemplified in what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, where he says, "'Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me.'" So whether poor or rich, the purpose is giving of ourselves in service to the Lord. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is why we live. This is the purpose for which God has put us on this world. And so with our riches, we are to glorify and enjoy God. And so the man who is rich but in Christ, can use his riches freely and without fear for good. If he abounds, it is for Christ's glory. And if he is abased, if he loses all that he has, he is nonetheless pointed to true riches even in the process. We can think of what is said by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 where there the Lord, speaking to Jeremiah, says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the rich man who is humiliated, who loses his riches in this life, nonetheless can boast if he knows the Lord and even boast in his humiliation for the rich man who does suffer humiliation for the cause of Christ and for his church imitates the very Christ whom he serves. Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, giving up the splendors and glories of heaven to take on human flesh and be made a servant here and to die the painful death of the cross, that he might make us rich in him. And so in this also, to glory in Christ is to be always rich. Then James wraps up what he is saying in this section, in this idea that he started in verse 2, with what he says in verse 12. There he goes on to say, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So ultimately, neither poverty nor riches can insulate us from trials. And indeed, poverty and riches, in a certain sense, are trials in and of themselves and can be a means of temptation to their own particular sins. But as we have seen in verses 2 through 4 in chapter 1 here, trials are meant by God to produce steadfastness in us. God gives us trials for the purpose of making us faithful and steadfast before him. And we see now that this steadfastness leads to the crown of life. This ultimately is the goal, that we are remaining steadfast, faithful to the Lord. Whatever is thrown our way, we have a sure anchor, a sure foundation in Christ, in all that he has accomplished for us, that no matter what happens to us, no matter what we do, if we are in Christ, our inheritance in him cannot be taken away. Whatever life may throw at us, we can stand secure. We are given the crown of life. Even abundant life that has begun now as we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And we are transformed, no longer being those who live after the lusts of the flesh, but are being conformed slowly but surely into the image of Christ, His life working itself out in us. And then finally, having endured all things, having Gone through the trials of this life, reaching the end and going and being before the face of God and of Christ and having that life that was begun here in this life crowned as everlasting glorified life that cannot be diminished. This is what all who endure these temptations will gain. And so trials are for our good. We must overcome them, not be overcome by them, whether poverty or riches or anything else that might come. And to those who are steadfast, whether in want or affluence, God gives abundant life and crowns it in time to come, for the glory in Christ is to be always rich. Some thoughts for how we apply this to our own particular circumstances. First, I want to address some wrong-headed exaltations of poverty. So we see here in this passage, James calls for the lowly brother, the poor brother, to exalt or to boast in his exaltation. And passages like this and other passages can sometimes be made to make it look out as though to be in want, to be poor, is rather a more preferred state than to be rich, that it is more blessed to be poor than to be rich, and wealth is just evil. And This kind of idea has some merit in that there are things that look like they portend to this in the scriptures, reading scriptures out of context such as, money is the root of all evil. Well, it's actually not what it says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil is what the Scripture says, or looking at what Christ says and calling the rich young ruler to sell everything that he has and taking that as a means of that. Well, if you're a real Christian, that means you're going to sell all of your property, everything that you have, and just live as a mendicant, as one who is poor and who lives off of begging from others. And in fact, there are many monastical orders that were founded on that very principle of thinking, okay, well, this is what it means, therefore, to be blessed And while we have to acknowledge that there are very real dangers to riches, as we have seen, and that many Christians were poor, and that is not a bad thing, that does not make it God's desired state for his people. It is not more blessed to be in want. And we can know this because of the hope that is extended to the poor throughout the scriptures. The hope given to the poor is not that, yes, take heart, what you are actually experiencing is the good life. And this is what you just want to continue to go in for time unending. No, rather, the hope extended to the poor is a restoration. Yes, you may be suffering yet now. Yes, you may be in poverty now. But God, whether in your life or in days to come, is going to effect a restoring of his good gifts, a restoration of his bounty to his people. And this is pictured for us most illustratively in heaven. No one will be poor in heaven or in the age to come. Instead, we will rather be lavished with God's gifts beyond what we could possibly imagine, for God is a bountiful God, abounding in all of his goodness and desiring to give us all of his goodness and the gifts of his creation that point us to him when we rightly use them, when we rightly understand them. And that is what the Lord will give us in the age to come. And so it is not more blessed to be poor, but rather, when used well, to have, to abound in God's good things, is more blessed. But also another wrong-headed exaltation of poverty is that poverty makes one more godly, sort of in the same line of thinking, but a little bit different. Now, what is true is that poverty does remove certain temptations that riches afford us. It removes opportunity for the sins of the flesh in many circumstances, and it gives a greater appeal to otherworldly rewards. If you're rich and you're, all of your comforts are taken care of, and then you hear about the world to come, then kind of think, well, I have, I have a pretty good here. I don't necessarily desire that as much. It can be more difficult to rise above what you're experiencing in this life. For the poor, it sounds wonderful. And so we can understand that. But nonetheless, we also have to recognize that godliness is not an automatic result of external factors. It's not as though, okay, make yourself poor and therefore you will be godly, godliness will follow. No, the poor can commit sins just as easily as the rich and the poor are not more deserving of God's grace than the rich are deserving of God's grace. And to say otherwise would be to destroy the very concept and foundation of salvation by grace. It's not grace if you deserve it. And so you can't get yourself in a position where, okay, well now God will really have pity on me, God will really look on upon me because I've made myself more deserving of his pity. No, God gives grace as he so desires According to his riches in Christ. And so, poverty and wealth are both those which create opportunities for godliness or opportunities for wickedness. And we are called, in whatever circumstance we are in, as Paul highlighted in Philippians 4, as we read, to glorify and serve him in either circumstance. For to glory in Christ is to be always rich. And so, therefore, how can we boast in every circumstance? these principles of poverty and of wealth apply not just to poverty and wealth themselves but to life in general. So how is it that you respond when life throws you a curveball and things that were going well all of a sudden take a turn for the worse? Or how is it when things are just going swimmingly and there doesn't seem to be a cloud in sight and you can just enjoy everything around you? In our flesh, we're prone to misuse everything. We can twist any good gift of God and make it a tool for evil. So when things are going poorly, we complain and we despair. We tell everybody about how awful things are and we don't remember to thank the Lord for the good things that he has given us, for the mercy that he has shown us. And all we can see is what we lack. Or if things are going well, We grow lax, we grow grow proud. We tend to just think that we have all that we need and we forget, again, to thank the Lord for the fact that he is the one who has provided these things and we forget to strive to make these gifts that he has given produce greater fruit for God's glory and for the good of our neighbor. But if we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, if we remember the purpose for which God has given these things, we can always boast. Whether abounding or struggling, we know that we are loved in our Lord Jesus Christ and we are being conformed to his image. And this is a love and a work that God will not repent of. He's not going to take us a little bit down the line and then decide, oh, well, I'm going to remove my love now. I'm going to stop conforming this one to the image of Christ. No. These are sure works, and he who began a good work in you will see it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so, if things are going poorly, you can boast in this. If things are going well, you can boast in this, and this should be your boast. Indeed, make it your very purpose to boast in Christ in all things. And to do this, therefore, you need to speak truth to your heart. That is not something that comes naturally to us, We naturally follow the flesh, which causes us to forget Christ. So part of what we do is we are reciting the gospel to ourselves. or reciting the truth of this world and our place in it to ourselves. And we're confronting ungodly behaviors, ungodly thought processes with the truth. And so in affliction, we are called to remember God's promises that he will never leave or forsake us. That he is with us always, even to the end of the age. That he cares for the downtrodden. Remember these promises, to speak them to ourselves, and never allow those doubts to creep in that say, well, God's really forgotten you. God doesn't care about you. Or any of the things that we mentioned earlier. When we're in affluence, we are to remember that God himself is the true good. That whatever good things we enjoy in this life are but a pale reflection of the one who is the creator of them all. And that God has given them as a means for us to look unto him and to delight in him and to glorify him. And these things can be an aid to that or they can be a snare to draw us away from that. But as we remember that God himself is the good to which we are looking, then we are enabled to take the good things that he has given us and use them for his glory and use them as a means to know him and glory in him. And with this perspective, then, give glory to God in all things. Renew your purpose to serve him with whatever you have, whether great or small. Give it to the Lord that he may be glorified. And the effects that then this perspective will have, this attitude will have of glorying in Christ in all circumstances is it will increase your joy and it will increase your hope. You'll be constantly nourishing yourself on the truth of the gospel, the very things that are meant to cause you to abound in hope and indeed in the fruit of the Spirit. It will also enable you to encourage others and glorify and serve God in your life in ways that otherwise you wouldn't be able to if we're so focused on the things that we don't have or so satisfied with the things that we do have, then we're not considering how it is that we might better our neighbor's estate. We're not considering how it is that these things, these circumstances, the unique opportunities God has given us to serve him in the place that he has planted us. But if we are glorying always in Christ, then we can be the one who is going through a great tragedy and difficulty but it nonetheless serves another and praises God and is an encouragement to someone else. It says, Wow, even though you're going through all of this, your hope is still firmly planted in Christ. And the things that you do also can be those good works that God promises to reward in the age to come. And that is the final thing. This effect will have great rewards. For doing the things that God has called us to do, living unto his glory, seeking to make our lives fruitful for God and his kingdom, has rewards in this life. We see it in the fellowship of the church as the church grows as we care for one another, as we are knit closer and closer together in the bonds of unity and fellowship in Christ, but then certainly and most illustratively in that age to come when all of these things are made perfect and God crowns not only us with life, but he crowns our good works and makes them glorious so that we praise and glorify him with the works that we have done, the works that we will be doing, Unto all eternity, because of his grace and the work that he has done in us. For to glory in Christ is to be always rich. And so, are you rich or are you poor? To have Christ is to be able to have riches for every circumstance, ultimately. And the question, therefore, for all of us is will we make Christ our boast? Will we make Christ our glory? He gives you the crown of life, even now. He has given you life, and life for his sake. Life that is meant to be good. Life that is meant to enrich you. Life that is meant to cause you to abound, welling up to its fullness in Christ and life unending in the age to come. Seek it. Walk in it. Glory in that coming hope. And you will boast and glory in Christ and have true riches. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would grant us your grace and favor that we may, as Paul did in all circumstances, know what it is to glory in you. We pray that Christ would be the boast of our hearts and the hope of all that we are. May we walk in his ways, giving you the glory, recognizing that all that we have comes from your gracious hand, and that apart from you we can do nothing. But also recognizing that you are the one who has prepared good works for us, that we may walk in them, for we are your workmanship in Christ Jesus and you have prepared these works for us. Give us grace that we may live unto you and have the riches that you promise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.